Welcome, consumed listeners, to another season of the podcast that stokes candid conversations with California eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers. And speaking of stoking, I'm stoked you're here. How California is that? This season, I spoke exclusively with women in the wine industry, and it was a transformative experience on my end. These are smart, accomplished, and dare I say, ballsy people I interviewed from diverse experiences, cultures, and walks of life. Oh, and I chatted with them outdoors to be COVID safe. Don't be surprised if you hear a lawnmower, barking dog, or wind chime in the breeze. This is my backyard. Welcome. I want to say something here about one of my biggest supporters and cheerleaders, Rancho de Onaveros Wines in California's Santa Maria Valley. Vigneron James Onaveros is an example of a man who shares his platform with the women in his life, business, and industry, including me. He wrote a post on Instagram about the all-women crews that work at Rancho de Onaveros, and I wanted to share that with you. He wrote, There's a sense of detail and accuracy that I've always admired and appreciated out of our crew of ladies. The level of detail and care is unmistakably fantastic. In a business where every little detail adds up in the end to something superior, if done well, it truly matters. I'm always impressed and privileged with the results from this excellent team. Many thanks to Rancho de Onaveros and James for his support of this podcast and the diversity of voices in the wine industry. For more information about Rancho de Onaveros wines, visit ranchosdeonaveros.com. Many thanks as well to Slow Life Magazine, the publication that puts the people of San Luis Obispo County in the spotlight. For my next food column in the magazine, I'm writing about rogue pizza makers. That's folks who make and sell their artisan pizzas through non-traditional channels, like from their home kitchen. It turns out there's a real trend here on the Central Coast of secret pizza people who use social media to promote and sell their stuff. Check out the next issue of Slow Life Magazine for more information or visit slowlifemagazine.com. I spent a lovely, cool February afternoon with Sonia Magdevsky, the owner of Casa du Metz, Clementine Carter, and the Feminist Party Wines out of Los Alamos, California. She's also a Michigander, a first-generation American, a Baskin-Robbins expert, a Fulbright scholar, and a journalist. But what she's best known for are her wines. Open and thoughtful, Sonia brings a wealth of stories to the podcast, from watching westerns with her dad to mistaking an MTV reality show for journalism, which was a move that subtly changed her life. I'll just cut to the chase here. She wound up meeting and having a relationship with Emilio Estevez while helping him plant a vineyard in Malibu. They're no longer together. Sonia is now married to a fellow Santa Barbara County winemaker, Greg Brewer. But the winery they began together in Los Alamos would go on to be her baby, Casa Dumetz. Sonia shared her perspective on travel and education, as well as immigration and the significance of beauty in the modern age. Here's my discussion with Sonia Magdevsky. Okay, so Sonia Magdevsky, I'm yeah. so happy to see you here in San Luis Obispo. Thank you for having me. What an absolute treat. This is absolutely gorgeous. On a sunny day, we were I supposed know. to have rain, and it's just a thrill to be here with you. Thank you so much. Yes, of course. Yes. And the moment you showed up on my doorstep, I just felt like um, there are some people who have a presence that's very authentic, and I, and I sense that from you right away. That's so, very sweet. Thank yeah. you. So you have about a thousand different lifetimes <laughs> packed into one and I don't honestly even like know that. where to begin. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad but no, it it's fantastic <laughs> obviously wine is why we're yeah. talking um but there are so many other things I mean I'm just going to list off the ones that I that I know so I mean Baskin Robbins is yeah, like oh, we got to get into that yeah <laughs> for sure um and then a Fulbright scholar yep. a journalist um I mean, there's some Hollywood stuff in there. Yeah, a little bit. Um, and then, and also um, Macedonia and mm -hmm. your family and Detroit. There's just a lot. Why don't we start with um, your parents? So why did yeah. they come? Is it from former Yugoslavia? Yeah, from former Yugoslavia. So it was Yugoslavia when they came in mm -hmm. the uh, late 60s. They came individually. Um, my great-grandfather on my mom's side had arrived in the 40s, um, started a bakery in Detroit with friends, 
and maybe a bar or something. You mm. know, all the stories are kind of random. Um, but they, he and partner started a bakery, and then he had been in the country for about 20 years, and he had three daughters back in the village, in one of the villages in Macedonia called Gloji, and he was ready to return, and so he said, I have this bakery, and who... Who wants to come and take over? And so he had three daughters, and one daughter was married, and her husband was a doctor and was pretty established in the neighboring city, so she says, we're not going. And the other two was my grandmother and her husband. My grandmother was a seamstress, and, ma- and her husband, my grandfather, was a um, teacher. And then my other, her other sister was a college student, and her husband was an engineer. So they were like, And they were all young. They were like, yeah, we're doing it. So they... Shipped out to the States. My mom was just turning 18 at the time. They landed in Detroit and sort of took over the bakery. Um, And so, you know, both my mom and dad's story is, it's pretty sort of standard immigration fare, you know. I mean, to not lessen it in any way, but, you know, you come to a country, you hang out with your community, with people that you know. There's a community that's established before you, and you just gather, and then you help each other. You know, you go to language school. You kind of figure out your system. Um, And everything shifts, you know? And so when my parents, when my mom's family first came, my mom originally thought, oh, we're going to be here for a couple of years, and then we're going to go back, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, My dad came separately. He was just finishing high school, he was from the other side of the country. And Macedonia, let's be straight, is a super tiny country. In three hours, you could, like, drive the whole country. But why were? They, how did they know each other if they were coming from across they the country? They met in Detroit. Ah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. They met in Detroit. Small um, community. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, same church, you do your thing, yeah. events, community center. Um, and so they met New Year's Eve in, um, gosh, 69? No, 68. 69, they've been married for a while. Uh, they met New Year's Eve. They got married February 22nd. So it was like wow. six weeks later. Mm-hmm. They were like, we're doing this. But my dad came after high school and uh, worked for his uncle who had a jacket company. And this was before sort of ch- uh, China was opened up. So mm-hmm. textiles and clothing, Detroit was a big hub for that, yeah. you know, particularly Motor City and car companies and jackets and logo yeah it was big and so he had this booming business and said you know send me one of your sons to his cousin and then my dad came over and so then they met and they again you know kind of hustled and established their lives and got married and again thought oh we'll be here for five years and then we'll go back to the old Mm -hmm. country and Mm -hmm. start over and and they stuck you get stuck you know and then there's there's that shift, you know, so much of immigration is so fascinating and depending on the awareness, um, you know, when they came and got stuck, you also, you sort of get stuck in two worlds, right? You, The world that you left keeps evolving, yeah. but you don't see it evolving. So right. you think that it's exactly how it was when you were there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're here and you're kind of in between worlds, you know, so you don't really belong in the new world Mm -hmm. and you don't belong in the old world anymore. So you sort of create this really interesting system, which also is why I think it's so important when immigrant communities have their community, Mm -hmm. you know, on the one hand, it's helpful. Additionally, on the other hand, it can be very limiting. Yes. Yeah. Because, oh, don't do that. Don't go outside. Don't go with the other people. Don't do these things. Right. So yeah. it's it's just it's challenging emotionally, psychologically, financially. Yeah. So we talk a lot about having a melting pot here and in many ways it is. But then again, in other ways, a lot of communities do find their strength and and peace in being together. Yeah. And so there may not be as much integration um, as we like to believe sometimes. Who knows? I mean, every single one is so different. Well, I, I, one thing that I, I think every community is different, and what I think is so positive today is younger generations, and this is totally broad-stroking it, mm-hmm. but younger generations who are exposed to diversity 
um, accept things much more readily mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. otherwise and in the past, you know. Yeah. So, you know, people like, you know, in high school, like, oh, right. what I think, like, you know, what's your name? And I go, let me, mind you, I grew up in Farmington Hills and where I grew up was an extraordinarily diverse communities, mm-hmm. people from all over the world, different religions, different cultures. And so for us, it was just sort of normal. Um, and then when you go to other communities, sometimes it's not so normal. Mm-hmm. So anyway, and I think the internet has helped, you know, the awareness. Yeah. yeah. And damaged us in ways, but that's well, another sure. conversation. Well, and then there's, I mean, you talk globalization, like air travel yeah. and, um, you yeah. know, international trade. And there's just a lot. There's a lot. There. Well, speaking of air travel, I mean, one of the greatest gifts, and I guess I'm not certain if I, when I really completely understood this, but every summer, you know, my parents, I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they saved the money. But every summer we got to go back to Macedonia and, you know, live, you know, spend time in the village and, you know, in the cities and go on vacation. And for six weeks every summer, mm-hmm. that's a huge luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't really aware of it. You know, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, I don't leave my friends. Like, don't make it go. <laughs> and then you go there and you're like, that was amazing. You yeah. know, and then you come back and you realize, oh, Nothing changed, and you guys were still playing in the playground, and you don't know what I did. Like, it was amazing. Well, and it is amazing yeah. what that does to you on the inside. Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, and that awareness. And so that sort of, on the one hand, forever, it kind of felt like a like a dual life. Mm-hmm. Um, and relatively recently, you know, I just turned 49, and so I'm sort of embarrassed to say this because I'm an extraordinarily, extraordinarily late bloomer. Um, a number of years ago, there was a group that was in the tasting room and they were Mexican American and he was one of the gentlemen was working marketing and he was talking about marketing campaigns that he was working on for like golf to get sort of Latinos involved. And, um, he said, no, 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 you're a hundred percent of one and you're a hundred percent of the other. Right. It's not half and half. Right. And that that was super valuable to me again embarrassed that I didn't think of that till that now but it's both yeah it's both and yeah so what was it like growing up for you um did you did you grow up you know well to do or or were you just kind of a you know middle class family yeah I mean looking back super very middle class Mm -hmm. and super fortunate you know I speak I'm very close to my parents today and so I keep saying, like, how did you guys do it? How did you yeah. have these businesses? How did we go on vacation? How did we, you know? Um, and so it wasn't, you know, like luxury, but everything we needed, we had. Yes. You know, right. it was, wasn't like, oh, you can't have those shoes. You yeah. know, it was like, oh, we're going to Florida for vacation. Okay, great. And so mm-hmm. you're not aware of it. Um, but you know, on, you know, we had an ice cream store, like looking back, I said, how did you guys do it? You know, cause today sort of pound for pound, um, if we just take numbers, right. Numbers from my business today versus numbers from the ice cream store. Yeah. Very different numbers. I could not be able to do today what they did back then and they just say yeah. they, they always said you know money the dollar was a totally different yep. system the value was completely different yeah so it's it's interesting you know are we saying when you say that i wonder are you saying oh gosh i'm gonna throw a bomb here do it but i like bombs <laughs> <laughs> are we saying that maybe it's harder to get ahead for a young person today oh than it was then. for sure absolutely that's i mean and a, we there are a lot hear, of people who will not like to hear that but it's absolutely true yeah. i mean it's 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 definitely possible it's just you know i guess getting ahead is a different level mm-hmm. you know sort of what you need to accomplish what my parents accomplished then and live that lifestyle you need much more today yeah you know i think that i would need to do double mm-hmm. uh to sort of live that same, have that, have those same perceived luxuries, yeah. you know. And that's not even mentioning um, 
college debt and uh, college debt is such an interesting thing. Can I share something with yeah. you that I was saddened me very much? Um, you know, parents, immigrant community, um, you know, extraordinarily hardworking, and we were talking about college, and they paid for both my college and my brother's college and it was in-state tuition you know which is in-state schools just awesome yeah. you know um anyway i kept thinking why didn't we ever i asked them why didn't we ever apply for student loan? i was first generation i was first to go to college so mm-hmm. you know who knew what you were supposed to do yeah. um all i knew is that my dad said you're gonna go to michigan that's all that's going to happen. And I was like, okay. So. <laughs> Great school too. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, at that time I really didn't understand what that value was to, you know, when you're 17, 18, you're like, okay, whatever. But I asked them, why didn't we apply for student loans or grants? How come we didn't do that? You know? And they both looked at me totally surprised. And they said, at that time we thought that it would be completely embarrassing to have okay. to do that. And if people knew that we needed to take out a loan that we couldn't afford college for our kids, that that would be sort of a shame. So they just scrambled. Oh, that so broke my heart to sort of, again, that perception and community. Again, that idea of when your community is is both, you can help you thrive and then limit you at the same time, you know. I, I went to school. I was a scholarship kid. And I don't, and, you know, my mom essentially did all the work shout out to Pam Johnson amazing woman um she uh did all the work to figure out scholarships and grants and loans and all of that and um sent me to uh Vassar College which is fantastic awesome private um private yes (laughs) private and very expensive uh but you know I Pam you're a ruler (laughs) And shout out to Dennis Johnson, too. Dennis, we love you, too. Yeah, just made it all possible. And really, like, the thread of doing something like this goes all the way Mm -hmm. back to that education. Um, But at the time, you know, I'm growing up California kid, growing up in Napomo, went to Royal Granny High School. Uh, Wow, you're so local. I love that. I'm so local. That's adorable. But the scholarship (laughs) thing, I I thought nothing of it. And then when I got there... None of my friends were on scholarship. Oh, whoa. None of them. And I actually didn't have any embarrassment about it or even just like I didn't have any um, awareness that that was a thing until we were sitting around having a beer and it comes out that, oh, nobody has a loan and nobody has a scholarship and nobody has any of this. Now it's like all of a sudden the world parsed out for me and I was in this one area and everybody else was in this other area now that that shrivels away and it you know dissolves but it was the first time I felt other I would say well it's that moment of awareness of oh there's a difference Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. that that happens throughout our lives continues till this day you know yeah but when that little thing hits you you Mm -hmm. know you're like oh oops yeah maybe or you know, and one of the fascinating things I think about differences um, and other is when someone always says, oh, you know, oh, you don't know about that or what do you mean? Or you're not aware or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it may be in any category, in any industry, or whatever it is. I always think there's so much that I know that you have no idea about. For sure. You know, and yeah. so the beautiful thing, again, about cooperation and collaboration and, and information is that we share and we learn. And then for me, ideally, like that, that, that gap becomes smaller and yeah. smaller. Yeah, and we're all better for it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Baskin Robbins was your family's business. I don't think I realized that. Yeah, it was. uh, We, you know, again, again, if you, if you, I'm not. Maybe it's not the same way in California, but um, in Michigan, you know, there was lots of immigrant groups, right? So there was Indians and Iraqis and and Macedonians and Polish and, all, you know, all kinds of wherever it was. It was like these groups. And, and you know, this is so generalizing, but it's sort of true. It was like many Macedonians had 
and Serbians had Baskin Robbins ice cream stores. It was like, oh, right? someone did this. Oh, you could do this. You could work. You could scoop ice cream. You could yeah. make all this stuff. And then you buy a franchise. And then you build it up. I'm like, oh, okay, great. And then you see one example. And then you have another example. And then you see another example. So then it's like, again, that community of like, oh, cheer this. Yes. Yeah. Information. Yeah. Oh, you did it. Tell me how. And so every kind of group sort of had their thing. Yeah. And obviously that's, but, you know, in general, that's just sort of how it was. It was really interesting. And if you talk to anybody from Detroit today, they'll be like, oh, yeah. And they could like rattle off like who owned what and who did what. Um, but it was, yeah. So it was interesting. We had the ice cream store. At one point we had two of them and then we had a dry cleaner. But again, it's those industries where business savvy, hardworking, grit, long hours, just make it happen. Mm-hmm. Be nice, and you can have a living. You know. Do they still have it? No, they um, they sold the business. Gosh, maybe more than five years ago. Oh, but only recently. Only really. recently, yeah. So I worked there all throughout. I mean, I was there all the time, but since I was like twelve until mm. finishing grad school, mm-hmm. you know. What's what your a favorite lesson. flavor? Ooh. Two. Unfortunately, one is not that like. Sung vanilla. I love vanilla ice cream. It's like yeah. my favorite. Well, there's a reason everybody yeah. loves it. Yeah, it's pretty good. Vanilla and mint chocolate chip was yeah. my favorite. Yeah, yeah. I was always. Is it pecan praline? Yeah, uh, pralines and pecan. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, mm. so good. We mm. would make mm. turtle pies with that. Put like butterscotch all over it and whipped cream. <laughs> yeah, made cakes and milkshakes and banana splits and hot fudge. It was. It was really, I mean, so beautiful. Yeah, so, so fun. fun. Yeah. Well, so you went off to college. Mm-hmm. Did you, I know that you, you majored in poli-sci, right? Yep. Political science. Did you know you were going to go in and do that? No, again, going back to that idea of, oh, I'm, I guess I'm going to Michigan. I got in. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, I, I guess I'm going to Michigan. And then you go to school. And, you know, I was, I was a good student. And I was smart. And I studied. And I, you know, followed the rules and did all those things. Um but then you enter college and, and the system is different, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. You're like, oh, the studying is different and the people are different. And it was amazing. It was, I mean, so formative and I loved every second of it. Um, but, you know, then it was like, oh, you have to major. And I thought, I don't, what does that mean? I don't know. I'm just going to, I'm taking classes, you know. I'm going to college. Yeah. yeah whatever and, that is. Yeah. And so in high school, I done some journalism and I loved it with work for the school newspaper and why I loved it so much. I mean, kind of like we're sitting here talking. Mm-hmm. It was so amazing to me that I could call anybody or go to them with a pen or a piece of paper and say, I'm writing a story on X. Will you answer some questions? And yeah. everybody says yes. Yes, that's right. And I thought, that is the craziest thing on the planet. Mm-hmm. You have no idea who I am. Mm-hmm. You have no idea what I'm going to do with this information. And you Talk to me. That was the greatest thing on the planet. Yeah. It's access. Oh, my God. It's It's wonderful. You know what? You're totally right. It's access. Yeah. It's access to information, which I love. There was a joke in college that, you know, we would, whatever we were doing, I'd be like, I need more information. Like, people would laugh at me. I'm like, no, I I need more information to make this decision. (laughs) Um, So that was beautiful. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to go and study journalism. And then... This, there was a journalist that used to come to the ice cream store all the time, and he worked for the Detroit Free Press at the time. Mm-hmm. My dad was like, oh, go ask him questions, you know? And so I said, oh, hey, I forgot his name, unfortunately. Um, but he'd come in all the time, and so I was helping him, and I said, I, you know, I'm interested. And he says, whatever you do, don't go to school for journalism. Mm. He says, mm. go to school for a specialty. Get a specialty, something that you're interested in, so then you can follow that path through your career. And so then I thought, I didn't quite understand it because I like so many things. And so I got into school and one of my best friends in sophomore year when I had to declare, she was a roommate and she was a political science major. I was like, oh, that seems cool. Macedonia, government, differences, countries falling apart. I'm super curious. I have this experience. And that was it. And so I chose it and I loved it. And it was a beautiful awakening. But from that point on, I thought, okay, I'm going to solve world peace and work for the UN. And now I'm making wine in Los Alamos. (laughs) Well, but you know, life is not a straight line. No. And I I love people who, for whom it really is not a straight line. You know, your, your thing about journalism, I didn't, 
major in journalism. I, <laughs> I teach journalism at Cal Poly. Oh my God, it's amazing. From time to I'm time. I'm going to come and take your class. From time to time. <laughs> but um, I didn't, I've never even sat in a journalism class. And I'm really grateful for that in some ways. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not grateful, but um, in others, you know, I studied architecture history and art history and music, which like are these useful things in life? No, uh, but I would argue that they they have everything to do with life. Absolutely, critical thinking and problem solving and um, observation. And I just really believe in creative people. So um, me too. So, but I got a job with uh, an architecture magazine, and that's how the journalism yeah. thing happened. I really loved. Um, the editing and publishing process a lot. So anyway, all that to say, get a specialty. If you're a writer, you're going to stay a writer. And if you are, um, I guess, willing to submit to the rules of writing, you can take anything and and wind up being a journalist, really. Mm Mm-hmm. It doesn't hurt to have somebody teach you how to write, but um, <laughs> but if you've got the, if you have the it inclination, does help. <laughs> yeah, it does help. Gosh, so so you graduated from Michigan. What mm-hmm. happened after that? So I graduated from Michigan, and I thought, well, I still want to do journalism, and that's really all I want to do. And so now I have this political science degree. So how do I do journalism? Mm. Because I have really didn't, you know, I had a couple internships in college and television and. Um, radio, which I loved. I loved radio mm. the most. That was my favorite. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, well, I'm not ready to do anything. I don't have enough experience to go and do anything. So then I applied for graduate school in journalism at Michigan State. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I st- started doing that. And, you know, I guess, you know, it's, it's. I just thought about this thread right now. Everything that I've done in my life, everyone said, don't do it. And I just did it anyway. <laughs> so I don't know what that means. But after graduate school, I mean, after college, everyone said, whatever you do, don't go right to graduate school. Like, just have some experience, and then go back. And I was like, no, I'm going to go to graduate school. So I went to graduate school, came to California, actually, uh, my first summer semester after my first year, um, lived in West Hollywood, had an internship for the, with the real world. Get out of here. Yes. And that... First season? First or second. I think they were in Florida Holy or Miami. Cow. I don't remember. Er- early days, like 90... Five. That is right. that's an important show. Yeah. It really is. Well, to tell you how naive I am and what a late bloomer I am, you know, I again, my whole focus on, on getting that internship was it felt very documentary. Yeah. It felt very journalistic to me. And I was like, Oh, I'm gonna go in and get in the system. Fake. Oh my god, and I had no idea that you went in and everything was fake. And I was, it was really heartbreaking, you know, so reality TV is really, there's nothing really that real about it. Mm -mm. And that was a huge awakening of, oh, it's not what it seems, you know, Um, this is not a pipe, you know. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) uh, My my closest friend lived in L.A. for a long time and was a writer on a reality show. Explain that. Oh, yeah. I mean, so it's fascinating. So, you know, they film. I don't know how they do it today and what shifted. But at that time, they would set up a, a conflict or a story. They put them in the room, whatever it was. This season, they had to, like, start jobs or be entrepreneurs yes, or something. I yeah, I mean, it was so absurd. And so what was heartbreaking to me is they would take all of this. They would take these dailies. They'd call them dailies, all this camera work all this film then the film editors and transcribers would fit like transcribe what happened and transcribe the dialogue then the story editors and the writers would take that dialogue and piece together stories yeah so what happened on monday was paired with what happened on the following monday or tuesday night and it was it wasn't linear at all And then they would edit it and cut it together, and then you'd have stories and conflict and all this. So the story editors, I mean, without the story editors, there wouldn't be there any would reality. Be a show. Yeah, um, but it was far from real, you know. 
Um, How crazy that your interest in journalism led you to the real world. To- well, you no, know. No, but I hear what you're yeah. saying. It's like, it felt oh, it's totally raw. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, this is so cool. This is on the cusp of everything, you know? And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> now I don't even watch reality TV because I was like, oh, I can't do it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that was it. And then I was living in West Hollywood and never made it to the beach because I would work during the day. And then at night I worked at the coffee bean and tea leaf on sunset um still there so funny um and so then i did that i was like oh i think i'm gonna stay maybe i'll hang out and maybe i'll get another job i just wasn't sure um and then i had uh the graduate school called me and said i had received an assistantship to work for an agricultural magazine on campus because michigan state is a big land grant ag school And I thought, amazing. And I thought, they pay for school. Mm. They give you a stipend. They pay for room and board. And I was like, oh, all day long. Mm -hmm. And so then I went back and kind of reversed it because I loved writing for this agricultural magazine that I stayed in school way too long because you had to be a student in order to work at the magazine. Uh, So you kind of, you like, Loved the job oh, and you stayed yeah. for a really long time. I took like drama and art history <laughs> and yoga and like every class you needed, anything just to like take credits. Um, and I finished my program, but halfway through that, I thought, okay, I need to kind of finish this. And then I applied for the Fulbright scholarship mm-hmm. to then kind of get back on track. And then I received it to go to, at that time, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Now it's called North Macedonia. Um, all these shifts. Uh, yeah, and, you know, my idea was how do I... There's all these changes. Again, going somewhere when you're kind of inside and kind of outside. Mm-hmm. You know, my whole life there was this conflict. Um, and, and you know, again, growing up in Detroit where there was it was very diverse. Everyone worked together and everyone hung out. And there, we were different, but we weren't focusing on the differences Um, and then go to another country where everyone only focuses on the differences. Mm -hmm. And I only saw the similarities. I was like, you guys are basically kind of the same people, but you're very different in a couple key ways. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand why you can't get along. And so that was my focus. Like, why can't you get along? Yeah. Okay. Oh gosh. Plenty of that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a quick detour here to talk about another consumed sponsor. Slow Food Co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality groceries, local produce, and exceptional customer service. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and a variety of organic selections. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit the Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Did you come away feeling um, like you had more questions than answers or more answers than questions? I came away with the very adult understanding that it's very simple and very complicated mm-hmm. and that I wasn't going to solve world peace. Mm-hmm. That was sad. Um, and a, But a couple of really key things that I think can apply in so many ways... You know, everyone that I interviewed there all wanted the same thing. So the goals were the same. What did they want? They all wanted a stable job. They all wanted a house and a family and a community. Mm-hmm. They wanted everything that anybody really wants, yeah. a house and a job and an income and, you know, a ability to do things and grow and develop and progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the system... And the government, um, the challenges that they were facing were always directed on the other. Oh, you're the one who's preventing me. You want this, but if I give it to you, then I can't have it. So you can't have it. And I'm going to keep it for myself. Um, And then, you know, there's religious challenges, which are also, I think, unfortunate. Mm -hmm. But so I came away with everybody wants the same thing. And if we could just see that and share, sharing is pretty valuable. Yeah. Um, 
and sharing information and, and sharing community, true community, there could be a lot more world peace, I think. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Interesting, though, that you had to come at it from a position of being in Detroit, mm-hmm. lots of diversity, um, and and not focusing on the differences. I think that's, I think that's really... Um, I think that's where things are changing right now for us in the States. For sure. You know, one of the things that I kept hearing, everyone that I asked from all religious groups, from all socioeconomic strata, from rural to urban, I would ask. So the the system was I interviewed about 25 different people and everyone was asked the same set of questions. Um, and one of the questions was, why do you not get along with X? And they would say, that's just the way it's always been. Ew. And so the other thing they said was that there's never been a system of government that has shown us that it's okay to do otherwise. Well, that's something. Yeah. So, you know, sort of the hierarchy and the understanding of it's okay to extend your hand, you know, should come from the top when it should come from all levels, you know. But there wasn't an example kind of like be the example you want to yeah. sort of lead. And, and they there wasn't an example. And so I think maybe today there are more examples. There are things changing. And mm-hmm. we are saying it doesn't have to always be that way. Mm-hmm. We can make a difference. Right. My husband and I were in Serbia um, a couple few years ago and um, Romania. Mm-hmm. And cool. Bulgaria. Beautiful. Yeah. What a fantastic place. And it, and it also feels like... A, a super speedy developing place. Like things are coming along. There's this new middle class. They are spending money. They are building those jobs and those families and Mm -hmm. homes. It's really, I'm sure that is my very ignorant, naive take on it, but that's what I see. Yeah. That's what I saw. For sure. Um, You know, people who are there and you know, the world is so international, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if we have it here, it's there too. Yeah. Music, culture, fashion, all of it, trends, you know, farmed, you know, everything that we think, oh, this is so unique to hear. Like, it's everywhere. Um, And so there has been a ton of brain drain, Mm -hmm. you know, people leaving. And the people who have remained, you know, this is obviously a broad generalization, but, you know, again, have an ability and a need and want to make a difference. And sort of the social awareness and, and the international awareness I think has assisted that a bunch Mm -hmm. a lot particularly since when I was there in 98 you know yeah thankfully yeah right I'm very thankful some of the best wine we had on the trip was in um was in Serbia was in Belgrade it was just delicious so so speaking of wine why why do you do wine (laughs) I know it's so crazy (laughs) and I I think I read something like time to go and I'm like oh and I make wine happens more often than I would like. <laughs> yes, here we are at 34 minutes. So in the next seven minutes, explain to me. Yeah. So wine, what, why and how did that happen? Yeah, you know, it's a, sort of a fascinating random journey. So in on one of the trips to, it was in 03, my dad came with me and we went, we were staying, I mean, we always go to his village called Podmojani in the Prespa region. Um, and they have a lot of land and we were walking some of the fields and we went up to this hillside and he said, Oh, this is where we used to have the vineyards. And I said, Oh, cool. And it hadn't been farmed in 50 years and there were still vines coming out of the ground. And that was amazing. And I was like, wow. And at that time it was just the start of uh, ecotourism yeah. and the idea of ecotourism. And so that right after that time and then um that awareness my dad and I on the on the drive back and on the plane ride back we had hatched this plan of how are we gonna you know replant the vineyards and oh make wine and do all these things and it was just you know I'm very close with my parents but my dad and I particularly when we'd work at the ice cream store we would um after a shift close at 11 we'd make some dinner and we would open some wine and watch a Western at, at night, 11 at night. Yeah. 
Yeah, because we'd be working all day, you know, and then... And watch a Western. Yeah, oh, yeah. Love it. We're both... He made me a huge fan. So that's what happened. So, like, this this sharing of, of that passion. And so we hatched this plan, and then I... At that time, I was already living in Malibu at the time, and I um, I came to California, which I thought would be temporary. So now it's been, you know, almost twenty years. Just like your parents, yeah, <laughs> totally, absolutely. <laughs> oh my God, the thread keeps happening. I didn't even realize that either. Um, and so uh, I came back, and I was working at a flower shop at the time, f- finishing up uh, my final thesis, writing a little bit here and there, and working at this flower shop for income. And that's when I met my former fiance, Emilio Estevez. And he had, and I just had come back and he had been planting a vineyard on his property. In, in Malibu. In Malibu, yeah. I've heard that there are vines in Malibu. There are vines in Malibu, yeah. Kind of all over. Does it, it and you probably have to say this, but it turns out, well, I've never had wine no, from Malibu. It no, it's not. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> what was that's why I'm in the Santinez Valley. <laughs> <laughs> what was the variety? Pinot Noir. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe of all of the... Yeah. I mean, the thing when you plant a vineyard and you don't know what the hell you're doing is you think, oh, how hard can it be? Really, 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 really hard. Yeah. And so I, I approached wine. So we had met. He was planting this vineyard. I have had this dream of planting a vineyard with my dad back yeah. in the village. I thought, oh, you're doing it from the ground up. And I said, can I help you? He said, yeah, of course. And I worked at the flower shop. And the joke is, I was at this flower shop, and he thought, oh, you know all about plants and horticulture. I knew how to clean roses and make bouquets and sweep the floor. <laughs> right? I didn't know what he, Yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I knew nothing about planting a vineyard. Mm. Uh, he's like, yeah, I need help. You know, 800 vines are coming um, next week. And so, like, you know, can you come on Monday? And I said, absolutely. And so for two days, we, the infrastructure was already in on this half acre, and we, um, planted these vines the two of us and it was really awesome it was was fantastic so we were friends for a while and then a love story ensued and then we were together and made wine in the garage and little by little you know we are obviously no longer together Mm. um still friends and but that's sort of how it started so we came about it from very different ways but when you don't know anything about it you know now I always say if I knew then what I know now Mm. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about wine. Yeah. Thankfully, I didn't yeah. because I sort of reversed those tendencies to get too much information. Hmm. Um, you were able to overcome that well, like paralysis sort of? Absolutely. Yeah. The more you know, because if everyone had, if I had a list and, you know, on the right side was all of the challenges, one through a thousand mm-hmm. of why you can't do this. Yeah. And on the left was, you know the one thing of like what would be positive you know (laughs) you'd be like oh there's no way I'm doing this but when you don't know all you do is attempt to survive and you just keep moving forward yeah how old were you when when he yeah the two of you 31 31. so it's like I mean you still having fun and like sure I love it that's the most 31 year old thing I've ever heard sure let's go plant (laughs) but to to talk about the fruit you know it was you know, now looking back, obviously, and it was very apparent very soon after planting, you know, it was all clay, yeah. really hard clay soil. Um, and it was a half an acre, but we did everything ourselves, pruning and everything else. And we were, it wasn't cold enough. It wasn't hot enough. We got socked in for so much of the season, you know, June gloom, mm-hmm. tons of mildew, not enough ripening. I mean, the challenges were completely against us. Yeah. And, you know, you can't change your environment your terroir your site so yeah the vineyard does it's not there anymore oh it's just yeah no because it's wasn't thriving you know did he know much about wine he likes to drink wine yeah yeah (laughs) planting a vineyard no i mean no none of us knew anything didn't know how to make wine didn't know any of those things you know it was like oh this will be fun invite your friends over yeah i mean i think that's the beautiful approach to it because the expectations weren't there. It wasn't as, oh, I'm going to do all these things and I'm going to yeah. get scores and I'm going to do, you know, whatever it is that's been accomplished along the way. That was 
never in the plan. It was, let's have fun. You know, mind you, I was supposed to work for the UN, you know, so making wine in the garage was <laughs> was not a part of that, but just a side hustle um, that then kind of evolved to something more. And then I started taking classes at Allen Hancock Community College and got more and more involved. Which is amazing. They, I have heard, uh, I have another guest that's going to be on this season who also just learned so much oh. through the vit culture oh. um the viticulture uh, program classes there, yeah. yeah sorry the program which i think is relatively new right in the past 15 years yeah or probably i think so um alfredo koch is the director there yes. he is i mean one of the best things about it he's so pro student he yeah. is so pro that program he is so involved um, and like I've met him a couple yeah. times, and he is like fired up for yeah. that program. Yeah, and it's always really reaches cool. out to the community, and you know it's been such an honor subsequently to have you know classes come to the tasting room and yeah. talk about wine marketing or owning a winery and all of those things. Yeah. Uh, they asked me to a number of years ago to be on a bus. They had a program, an incentive program called Start Here, Go Anywhere. Yeah. And they called me like, oh, you know, you left the program and you have a winery. So it was like, start here and open a winery. And I was like, that's amazing. It was so fun. <laughs> I have the posters. Like, I'm so honored, of course. That's but it was cool. great. You know, and again, going back to school as an adult, your focus is different. You're yeah. the, you know, you're the most annoying kid in class asking all the questions. Yeah, like, but you're oh, going to whoop this thing. For sure you are. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, then shortly thereafter started immediately, actually, because when you plant the vineyard, it takes a number of years to actually get a viable harvest. And so, so we were sourcing why, I'm sorry grapes. to interrupt. Why yeah. did you decide that you were going to be um, Santa Barbara County? Yeah. So without, you know, as I always say to everyone in L.A., I mean, we're your farm to table. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's that's your backyard. And so we would always come up to Santinez and go wine tasting. And and so planning the vineyard, we wanted to get a start of making wine. And so we worked with people up here and sourced Syrah mm-hmm. um, from a couple of different vineyards, you know, a little bit of Pinot. Mm-hmm. And we was making in the garage. And then in 07 was our first Pinot harvest. I think, you know, 30 gallons or whatever it I'm was. picturing you guys with a truck bringing the juice back. <laughs> just, oh, my it's gosh. It's not pretty. <laughs> it's not pretty. I mean, we were total home winemakers, you know. It was mm. crusher to stemmer, a little hand crank, and a little tiny basket press, and a barrel in the garage. I mean, it was extraordinarily fun and yeah. illuminating. And it was it really came from the earth, you know, understanding the soil understanding what the vine does, understanding how the grapes react and seeing friends' reactions. I'm like, we made this and oh my cool? God, it's delicious. And whether it was or not, I mean, it was nice to be lied to, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, to make something. Who that's, makes things anymore, uh, you know? And that's the most beautiful thing about wine. I think anything that you make. I mean, this podcast, mm-hmm. I listen to it, you you send it off into the world, and now it mm-hmm. takes on its own life. Yeah. And that's beautiful. And you put, it's both myopic um, and whatever the opposite of myopic is, you know. Big? I don't yeah. know. I don't even know. Yeah. Broad? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's all of that at once. Yeah. You instill everything you have, and then to see someone else. You know, that's, I'm always at the tasting room, and the beautiful thing is, talking about it and seeing someone ingest it into their body. That is so powerful. Mm -hmm. And then sharing it. And it's just community. Again, it's all about that community. That's so, so important. Yeah. I would say actually that's the thing about this podcast that is, has been the, the big joy of doing it is creating that net of people who now they know one another. Yeah. There will be people in San Luis and in Paso Robles who maybe never met you, and now they'll know, and they'll go to the tasting room, or even they'll go to Clark's place mm-hmm. and talk to him or their yeah. server, and, oh, we heard this thing about Sonia. And there's something really, um, it, I feel like sometimes on my best days, I feel like we're weaving something tighter, more tightly woven, and that that can... Oh, man, I get poetic sometimes. But that that could catch a community, you know. It could be the net under the trapeze. Sometimes it really can be. Absolutely. And and it's just the connections just keep building mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and building and building and building. And, yeah. you know, it take again, it has its life of its own, which is just so beautiful. But making something, and you're <clears throat> right, seeing somebody 
take it into their body is pretty special. Mm. And I think you, if I remember right, you have a, don't you have like a community series where people come and pour? Well, we do um, early on. Again, I'm in Los Alamos, mm-hmm. and Los Alamos has shifted and changed a lot. I've been there 10 years now. Oh, huge 10 years. Yeah, huge 10 years, and so beautiful. And it's funny now, again, going back to everyone, whatever anyone told me not to do, I did. You know, I had a girlfriend I would stay with her in Los Alamos, and when I found the ta- my first tasting room there, everyone said, whatever you do, don't go to Los Alamos. Nobody goes to Los Alamos. Even Clark was like, don't do it. Don't open. Yeah. (laughs) Jamie from Bell Street Farm was like, no, don't do it. It's too hard. And I was like, oh, you don't, guys don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) You know, they were absolutely right. Um, But opening there, I thought, well, it's kind of tucked away. I get to create my own identity. Uh, The rent is cheap. I'm my only employee. I can afford this. I have this wine to sell. So again, we were talking about, you know, Bixby Gin at that, at that point earlier, you know, it was that idea where I said, okay, I'm going to stop everything else I was doing and I'm going to just focus on this as a priority. And that was 2011. And I thought mm-hmm. I'm going to give myself six months. And if in six months I can't sell enough wine a month to pay my rent, mm-hmm. then I'm going to really go back and solve world peace. And Pack it up. And- yep. And be done. The world. And yeah. ten years later, and so now I just say I solve world peace one bottle at a time. Yeah. So right. we have a community every Friday. We do a speaker series, and that started early on because I needed to find a way to talk to people. I mean, Los Alamos was a lonely town in yeah. 2011 and 2012. There was no, not many people coming through enough, you know, but it still wasn't. And so I thought, you know, we're gonna. And I was, again, going back to that journalism, I'm always so curious. I thought, well, I want to invite people to come. We'll talk about something new every week for one hour. Have a glass of wine. Don't have a glass of wine. Totally don't care. Just come and hang. I'm lonely. And so let's talk. (laughs) And that's pretty much how it started. And the first speaker series I did was uh, actually, I don't know if it's still here. It was a bonsai, in-ground bonsai farm in Napoma. It's still there. Um, and they, the father of the nursery and the son came. The father brought, dug up a bonsai tree. And while the son, who was so charming, um, uh, spoke about the history of the nursery and what they were doing and the history of bonsai, the father shaped Aww. this tree. It was, and we had 30 people. I thought, this is ridiculous. 30 people in this tiny space listening to bonsai. Learning something. Yeah. Yeah. And then I thought, okay, something's happening here. And so yeah. we've done it ever since. Now we do it on Zoom, but we'll return sure. back to in-person. Yeah, that's And we so hardly cool. ever talk about wine, you know. That's the fun part. Well, same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess like right now. <laughs> well, and I don't have a ton more time, but I do want to ask you about your three labels. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, people can look into your label. So you have Casa Dumets, you have Clementine Carter, mm-hmm. which is based on, whose name is that? Uh, my favorite character in my favorite Western. Okay, there yeah. we are. Yep. Okay. And that's based on, Casa Dumets is Pinot. Yeah, so okay. the evolution of then, I mean, we've kind of covered a little bit of it. So, obviously, that former life no longer exists. And in 2014, there was a big shift, and then Casa Dumets wasn't, you know, we are no longer together and Casa Dumets mm. doesn't exist. So I thought, well, who am I? Mm-hmm. I've started this winery and I have this tasting room and I'm a sole proprietor with a name that doesn't quite fit anymore, mm-hmm. you know? So I thought, well, who because am the I? the name was based on... Yeah, a place. Yeah. Well, and a, pl- and a place that oh, wasn't there at Frippino, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, okay, how do I... What does this mean? And so in honor of why I'm here talking to you today, um, Casa Dumets is one Pinot every year from Santa Rita Hills, Mm -hmm. which is, I know there's lots of amazing places for Pinot, but that's the most epic, of course. Yes, love Um, it. And so every year it's a different vineyard, you know, different clone. And so I I get to explore the AVA. um, and, And, you know, ironically, I've made more Pinot from more vineyards 
in my career than any other varietal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, working with my husband now, Greg Brewer, and working at Hilliard Bruce and working together in the winery. I mean, we've covered so much of that area, which is so spectacular. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I mean, I love Pinot. So it's one Pinot every year. Um, and then Clementine Carter became the Rhone sort of center. Um, and again, based on, because that was really kind of a true identity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this woman on a journey who, in the film, she takes this train cross country looking for the love of her life. And when she arrives, it's unrequited. Mm-hmm. And she still finds a way to have an, a new journey and a new path and a reason for being. Mm-hmm. And so her story really rang true. And the name is cool, which I love. It is cool. Yeah. So that became the Rones. And then at the same time, again, this shift in awareness, um, I started the feminist party mm-hmm. with a girlfriend who was no longer involved in the project. Um, and so it's kind of evolved. It's the only blend of grapes that I make mm-hmm. of different grapes. And it's for radical inclusion because we all work better together, going back to that community. and Love it. You know. It. Yeah. So it's complicated. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm 2,000 cases. Most of it is direct. I work with a couple of wholesalers around the country, mm-hmm. but nothing dramatic. So to share that story, you know, it sounds overwhelming, but... Once no. you sit and hang, like it's, we can talk about it. Well, like I said, you have a lot. You have a. There's a lot uh, that's happening for you currently, but also just you know, your your stories. It's like they splinter in a bunch of different directions, yeah. and yet at the end, it all makes sense. I have Hopefully. one very <laughs> odd question. I don't even really know how to ask it. Um, I, in looking some things up about you, I will tell you that a lot of the articles I read mm-hmm. focus on. How you look, and that really, yeah, oh. yeah, and you are a beautiful woman. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would Thank argue you. that all of the women I talk to um, for this season are, and I am, and my daughter is, and my mother is. Um, but it was interesting. The reason it struck me with you is you've got this wine called the Feminist Party, and I don't, I, I, I don't know that that's necessarily a political statement mm-hmm. so much as I love it's about radical inclusion, whatever. But does it ever feel like it focuses on your looks, any part of the wine industry? Gosh, that is a Has very fat. Yeah, I'm not sure how to respond because I've never, ever thought about that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and just just to be clear, yeah. I am not saying like you got ahead because of your. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just yeah. talking about the physical side of. I don't know. As a woman, how does that impact your life? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm totally thrown. Um, I, I guess I'll just start rattling off things. Mm-hmm. I think aesthetics are important Mm -hmm. to me Mm -hmm. Um, and you know our individuality is what is so beautiful as I was reminded on our last speaker series we're talking about compassionate wellness Um, Mm -hmm. and again the awareness of everything and and the awareness of beauty is in every shape and form which Mm -hmm. is absolutely absolutely true I mean Always, um, but the diversity of beauty is everywhere now, which is mm-hmm. great. Yeah. So, you know, growing up, you know, you have blonde hair, so I mean this in... I used to have blonde hair, but I haven't been to the salon in a year, so oh. now I'm back to my roots. Well, I and- have been to the salon, and that's why I'm blonde. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I said to my husband the other day, I was like, how does it feel to have a totally different wife now, a year later? Because it's I look totally different. Um, but all I wanted was straight blonde hair mm-hmm. with bangs. You know, I wanted to be Marsha Brady. Uh, you know, yeah, like that was like, yeah. oh, you're the best. You're the coolest. Um, so... I think it's important. I think it's in, everyone has a different way of what makes them feel good. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a very physical person. I really enjoy running. I enjoy the strength and the psychology that it gives me. Mm-hmm. Um, I love wearing dresses. Mm-hmm. I feel most comfortable. Oh, God. They're just sitting in the closet. They're right just now. sitting in the closet with nowhere to go. <laughs> so 
sad. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, it's that it's that idea. And so the, the physical, and it's funny because during harvest, I will wear the same three, you know, that's another joke. I wear the same three pairs of pants and the same three right. T-shirts like every day for three months. <laughs> um, and that's amazing too because you know, I know that then when I'm done, I can get dressed up and I can go to the mm-hmm. tasting room and I can, but it also, it's, I think it's, it's for me, it's, Based on confidence, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How you feel and what you wear. I mean, that we all do that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. I need to find these articles that you've seen because <laughs> I haven't seen them. <laughs> well, but I you think- know, being a being a woman in the industry, you know, I've, I've been asked that a lot for obvious reasons. Um, I would really sort of say more, you know, being a sole proprietor and an entrepreneur in an industry is way more important of a question, Mm -hmm. you know, because of the challenges and the lessons and the risks and the financing and the survival Mm -hmm. and the struggle. You know, I recently did a really amazing, I was just kind of struggling in in the way of now what I was out of ideas. Um, and I did this really beautiful session with this woman. Um, and we distilled, I, you have to come with a question. And my first question was, you know, four questions in one. And she's like, okay, well, we really have to make one question. <laughs> Is there a question in yeah. there? Yeah. And so we distilled it down to, and I was surprised at myself for even not knowing this is what I essentially wanted to ask was, what does thriving mean? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And so throughout life, You know, thriving is also confidence. Thriving is joy. Thriving is, there's so many things to that. But Mm, connection. Yeah. And I think feeling good about yourself is is really important. Yeah. You know, know, I I feel like I have to restate because I I don't mean this to be about looks. It's actually really not. It's about when our gender so much of what we are and do has been based on the way we look. Mm-hmm. And um, so I guess I'm asking, because I noticed some pieces about how you look, I was thinking, well, as we evolve, we don't have to think so much about that in terms of like, you know, the beautiful survive, which I think has been a lot of history mm-hmm. has been like that. Mm-hmm. Um But more now that it's not the beautiful survive, what do we do with, you know, as a as as a confident, thriving woman? Mm -hmm. What do we do with beauty and how do we treat it and what does it give us? You know, I I think it's an interesting concept um, and a good thing to consider. And it evolves as you get older, Mm. you know. Amen. (laughs) You know. It's uh, and then this is when we could have another podcast. Yes, Um, but it's it it changes and it shifts, and then you know, thirty versus forty versus fifty versus, you know, and it's beautiful and the awareness and the shift and the value and the gosh the perspective you know, Mm -hmm. there's so much perspective, Mm -hmm. Um, but you don't know that until you've lived a life and made mistakes and. And understood what's important to you. And everyone has to make those decisions individually, you know. Um, All we have in equal measure is time and how we spend that time is, you know, and that's one of the really interesting things about this last year is that awareness of how do we how do I really want to spend my time and who do I really want to spend it with? Mm -hmm. And it's it's evolved in terms of. Uh, fruit contracts and who I want to work with in the vineyard and thankfully I've you know have had this amazing collaboration with the vineyard in the Santa Rita Hills and we are now I feel confident again enough and we're moving forward to plant specific blocks just for our program yeah and then you know shedding other contracts so I thought you know what I've hung on to this for way too long for yeah I'm done I'm done not communicating the way I want to communicate Um, and so I think that also comes from the confidence and 
again, from the challenges of, of being a woman and feeling like, oh, I should just be okay and say yes and take it and it's mm-hmm. okay for right now versus no, I'm, no, I've earned this. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that takes some time and some energy mm-hmm. um, and perspective and knowing, I think, you know, thankfully that during COVID there's been a ton of really beautiful Zoom opportunities. Yeah. You know, I've done things in Macedonia, you know, mm-hmm. with Google, with all kinds of things based around these questions. Um, and so much of it always comes back to you don't get anywhere without hard work and grit, yeah. you know. Yes. As you know, I mean, mm. I, I'm sure there's more for me in that department. I've I've lived a pretty charmed life, but I I do see that. I do see that for sure. Well, I've spent way too much time, uh, t- too much of your time. You should be honored. I went way over. It's fun. <laughs> I um, am. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> but now we have to do part two. I know. Always, it's a problem. Well, let me ask you. How my do final... I make you pinky swear that we'll come back? <laughs> Oh, it's so fun. It's so fun to sit in the sun and have yeah. a chat. You know, yeah. it's like life is too short not to do this. So thank you. Um, let me ask you final question. If, it, if you were celebrating your life because you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you eat Oh, and drink and with who? I would definitely drink champagne mm-hmm. without question. Totally dry. Blanc to blanc mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I could lift, list a ton of producers, but if they could all be on the table, that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, gosh, with my family, you know, with my husband and my brother and my mom and dad and, you know, a couple of dear friends, like that would be really, 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 really valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's such a hard question. You know, people always say, oh, if one thing... I always still believe that if it was, you know, if you could have dinner with anyone in history, who would it be? And I always say, my ancestors, Mm -hmm. I want them to come and sit at the table and grow and eat the food that my dad grows in his garden and drink the wine that we make and reminisce and talk about, you know, all of their efforts were not for naught, you know, that there is an evolution to that. And that's really, really beautiful. And so carrying it on is is important. So yeah, what would I eat? I eat the same thing every day. I'm kind of a boring eater. It would definitely have to be avocados on the table. Perfectly ripe avocados. Delicious, delicious, chunky, crusty bread. Um, Awesome cheese. Saltier the better. (laughs) Um, Fresh tomatoes I can like pluck from your garden right here. Um, Yeah, and eggs. I love eggs. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that it's not a dish. It's like these are my things. Yeah, this is what I. These like. are my things. Yeah, yeah. Cool, Sonia. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Jamie. This was an absolute treat. Listeners, I hope you've learned something, felt something, or been pushed to taste something new during this episode. I'm getting a buzz just thinking about it. If you want to learn more about consumed or any of my guests, go to let'sgetconsumed.com. Very special thanks to my stalwart editor, Chris Lambert, who helps me out when he's not working on his own project, the wildly popular true crime podcast, Your Own Backyard, about the disappearance of Cal Poly student Kristen Smart. There's new movement in that story, by the way, so look the podcast up right now. Also, if you like Consumed and think more people should hear it, please review the podcast wherever you like to listen. That always gives me a thrill. Okay, until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis. 